Welcome to How We Run, the podcast about nonprofit success. I'm Trent Stamp, CEO of the Eisner Foundation. And I'm Julie Lacature, and I help nonprofits with strategy, fundraising, and digital media. On today's episode, we're talking about building an online audience for your nonprofit using content. Trent shares his experiences with Charity Navigator, and we're joined by Kami Akhavan, the CEO of ProCon.org, who shares how his nonprofit grew from an audience of one to an audience of millions. Hey, Trent. Hi, Julie. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about building an online audience, something you have a little experience with, right? We built a pretty good audience from nothing to uh, to several million users a year at Charity Navigator. Several million, really? Yeah, I think at our height, we were up to around 7 million users per year. That's amazing. Uh, what constituted a user? A visit or multiple visits? Or how did you look at that? Um, it involved actually not just clicking there on accident. You actually had to take an action once you were there. We were trying to be authentic in our measurement. Uh, how many millions clicked on something accidentally? Um, <laughs> six million? Oh, cool. I, I don't know. Good stats. Really, really good stats. How did you go about getting those users initially? Well, first of all, it was 2001. So that obviously is is the stone age before social media in any way whatsoever. So anything I say should be taken with a grain of salt because we were doing it in, you know, in an era that feels today like it was uh, silent movies kind of thing. But I can tell you the things that we found that didn't work. Oh, yeah, um, that'd be great. Perhaps that's more helpful for some, which is one, we found that traditional advertising didn't do a thing. Okay, um, so for Charity Navigator, you were looking at magazine ads? We or actually like, ran full-page glossy ads in several major magazines. People no Magazine, way. Time, Newsweek, and one in USA Today. Advertising our service, what we were doing, why we were doing it, why you as a user might find it helpful. All that did was get the nonprofit community scared that there was some sort of new faceless, nameless person that was coming to evaluate them. And it didn't actually drive more than six or eight people to our site. It was basically throwing money out the window. Yeah. Um, so that was a failure. Advertising was a failure. We also found that, you know, just building the site, we had this theory of, you know, if you build it, they will come. That too didn't work. There are so many websites out there that just having a site, um, no matter how beautiful it is, no matter, no matter how many bells and whistles you put on it, no matter how informative it is, if you can't figure out how to get people there, people won't find their way on their own. So um, advertising and just building a high quality site weren't enough. When we started to get people to come to our site, we did it through two main avenues. The first was through the charities themselves. If we told a charity that they were a four-star charity, they were really likely to then tell everyone else that they could possibly find about that. Um, and that kind of became the highest level of marketing for the good charities, which so was a good would... thing for us. They would send out emails, actual letters, put it in their annual report, put it on their website, share it in their monthly newsletter. Mm -hmm. um, we're a charity navigator, four-star charity, check us out. And so we, 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 and we were very strategic about that. We would send them the logo. Um, other charity rating services were selling those types of logos as a way to generate revenue. Um, and you know, we were not doing that. We gave it away and we expected them to then share it, which they did. And that caused a lot of people to then go to our site eventually. And hopefully when we were there, they didn't just verify that original charity, but they then took the next step of checking around and seeing what else they could find there. The other thing that we did that we found great traction in and was eventually kind of the, the base determinant was we did a ton of media and we were lucky enough to do a ton of media. And that kind of fell into two 
main buckets. The first one as a charity evaluator was when something awful happened in the world, which I think we've talked about before, mm-hmm. I would go on TV and radio and talk about how to find a charity that you could trust. Um, we did it after Hurricane Katrina. We did it after 9-11. We did it after the tsunami. I went on all the morning shows and told people, here's how you can find a charity that you can trust. And so it was important for us to be ready with those times with, here's a list of 10 charities you can trust that we had vetted and that we were ready for. So, um, if something bad happens, who are we going to recommend? So that was one method that we used on the media was just to be there to try to be helpful. The other method that we use, which is probably not something that other charities can replicate in any way whatsoever, is that we went on TV and radio and said horrible things about bad charities. And there was great traction for that. The media really wanted us to do that. Um, Amazingly, you you wouldn't be shocked to hear that Fox News liked to have us come on and say bad things about charities that perhaps had good brand names, but weren't spending the money appropriately. But it was a great way to build a brand. So, Mm -hmm. you know, well, it, it made me like... uncomfortable at times to be on Fox News all the time. I was the charity talking point guy for Fox News, but it was good for my organization. And I always insisted on talking about what I thought were legitimate topics. Well, it sounds like it was a differentiation of content, too. You were you had con- kind of controversial content. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was able to I was willing and able to say to the national media and to their audience, a lot of the people that you think are doing really good work may not be doing as good a work as you think. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, unfortunately, that sells. The if you build it, they will come. I know you had couched uh, what you were saying to say, oh, it was 2002, so it was a different time. I still see that behavior all the time, though. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, every time an organization struggles in some way or another, the board proposes that they either fire the development director or have a golf tournament or redo the website. Right. Um, yeah. you know, that, that's what we do in this. Right. And a lot of times it's just moving around deck chairs on, on the Titanic. Just having a website at this point, if it's not informative, um, if it's not qualitative, if it doesn't tell your story and it doesn't cause people to then take an action in 2018, it's no different than being listed in what we used to call the phone book. Right. That, but all it was was a listing. Right. It didn't actually provide any information. And I see way too many websites today that are just listings. So today we're talking to Kami Adkavan, um, who's the executive director of Procon.org, which is a website that does an extensive amount of research on controversial issues. And they've built up an incredible online audience, uh, largely due to the content on their site. My name is Kami Akavan. I'm the CEO of Procon.org, have been for 14 years. Thanks, Kami. Kami, I'm so glad to have you here. A lot because we're talking about something that I'm really interested in, which is how to run an online nonprofit. So tell me a little bit about Procon.org. Well, Procon.org has been around since really 2002, and I'll briefly briefly tell you and our audience here the origin story of it, uh, if I may, uh, which is in, in 2002, our founder had a friend who had AIDS. And this friend was wondering whether or not he should smoke marijuana. And some friends were saying, hey, Peter, you really ought to smoke pot. It's going to increase your appetite. You're going to eat more. You're going to be healthier, stronger, live longer, happier. And other friends were saying, Peter, pot is illegal. You're going to compromise your health, mess up your lungs. You'll go to jail. You'll die sooner. Don't smoke pot. And Peter didn't know what to do. So our founder said, I tell you what, Peter, I'm going to have my research assistant put together this 
information in a pro and con format so you can make your own informed decision. And I'm going to put it on this new thing called the internet because I don't want to have to call you all the time or email you all the time. You just look when it's convenient. So it was intended as a communication to Peter, but it turns out more than Peter was looking and not just hundreds of people, but thousands and tens of thousands of people were looking. It was referenced in a Ninth Circuit court decision before our founder realized, hey, more than Peter is looking. Wait, so it was referenced in a court decision? How long after it was started? The website was within a year. It was within referenced a year. in the Conor V. Walters uh, famous mar marijuana case. Okay. And our founder thought, hey, this is a business idea. And he tried it with another couple topics. Same result. Lots of people were looking. He said, I'm going to turn this into a nonprofit entity because the world needs this. They need information on both sides to make good decisions. And so ProCon.org was founded in 2004 as a 501c3. And it exists for the public service of basically helping people make good decisions through critical thinking by presenting pro and con research on issues from medical marijuana, same-sex marriage, gun control, minimum wage, standardized testing, school uniforms, you name it. We have 70 plus different topics uh, and that's basically the gist of it. We've served 25 million people a year now. Uh, for 180 million people have come to ProCon since we started way back when in 2004. With, uh, with an audience of one. With an audience <laughs> of one. That's right. We've come a long way. And so you started as an editor in 2004. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Immediately before ProCon, I had a job in management consulting. I was paid really well to do something I really didn't care about. I was looking around to pursue something that was closer to my passion. I was always the debate nerd in high school and college and loved politics, loved literature, and I wanted to somehow marry that with my skills in an operations management and building online entities. And so I saw an ad on monster.com managing editor wanted. It was a startup, but I did some research on the founder and thought this ain't your typical startup. You know, this person has money to fund this thing for a while. We don't have that typical startup problems. And boy, what a great concept. I can really get behind this and I don't regret it for a second. You know, I'm so proud of what we've been able to accomplish at ProCon. We've been cited by 17 state departments of education. We're referenced by 35 state governments. We're referenced by 24 international governments, including the United Nations and the European Union. I'm very proud of what we've been able to do at high policy levels, but also in the classrooms. You know, middle school students are using ProCon to decide what they think about animal testing. And I just love that we're able to stoke critical thinking at scale, which is something that's really hard to achieve in the nonprofit sector, scalability. But in 2004, can you tell me what the organization was like? How many issues were you covering? How many were you still just writing for Peter? At the time in 2004, no, at that time it was serious. It went from the back of an envelope project between uh, Steve and Peter uh, to something where he thought, we, this, is, this needs a national audience. This has to be big or what's the point? And scalability had always been the game. Prior to ProCon, I mentioned management consulting, but part of my role in that job and prior jobs had been growing online audiences specifically. I had done that as a chief editor at the Center for Entrepreneurial Leadership. And in that role, my job was, Kami, when someone types in entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship education into Google, make sure we're number one. Then after that, I got a job this is strange, but working with internet casinos. I worked with about 20 of them. A lot of money that was spent in marketing in those industries, and I had to figure out how to make sure that those sites appeared on top. So I learned really incredible strategies. So between that role and my prior role, learned a lot about how to put and position websites to be at the top of the search results. And I yeah. thought, I really need to leverage that for ProCon's sake, because this is about something that really is critically important for the country. So in 2004, to take this from a back of an envelope project to something that was real, 
strategy number one, we don't have a lot of money, we don't have a lot of time, but we know this needs to be big. So how do we make sure that when someone types in medical marijuana, when someone types in gun control, when someone types in US-Iraq war, when someone types in Israeli-Palestinian conflict. All the issues you have on your all site. All the issues we yeah. have on the site. How do we make sure that we're at the top of the search results? We don't have the budget to afford it, but we somehow have to get there. How do we do it? All right, how did you do it? All right, <laughs> well. well <laughs> Spill. That's something I could teach courses about, right? I don't have a degree in internet marketing, but boy, do I deserve one. Uh, internet, this type of marketing, to me, I boil down into four words. And my four words are content, engagement, infrastructure, and what's called SEO, or search engine optimization. Okay. Let's go one by one down these. So content, I think this one's the obvious one, right? Well, content is an obvious one. And you know, there's a certain some series of questions that a nonprofit organization needs to ask itself before it even starts to look at these four things. And and one of them is about how do you want to differentiate yourself as a business uh, and in the online space. So there's a famous business writer, Seth Godin. I'm, I know you know him. Uh, he has a book called Purple Cow. And Purple Cow is, is making the business case for why you don't want to be a generalist when it comes to promoting your business, because you can't compete with, say, Amazon. You have to find your niche and promote your niche. And you can have a lot of niches, but start with one, take it over, move on to the next, 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 next. So it's all about differentiation and being specific and targeted in your approach. With your content. With your content. That's that's right. It's so all tell me how ProCon.org was specific with its content. Well, for example, topic is medical marijuana. So we had to focus on the content side, developing top quality content around medical use of marijuana. So what does it mean to build top quality content? If you're a professional researcher, it means you are contacting the top experts in the field on the pro and the con side. In our case, it was we worked directly with the patient advocacy groups, Americans for Safe Access, Marijuana Policy Project, Normal. And we worked with physicians. We worked with major medical organizations. We worked with the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Office of National Drug Control Policy. And we worked with state governments. And we contacted all the people in these agencies and say, we need to see your best research. We need to hear your best arguments. We need to talk to your top experts. We want to take the best of their statements and their research and put it on this website in this deceptively simple pro and con format. When we do that, when people see the content, they're like, oh, this is what I've been wanting to see. High quality and then curated. And curated. And it's both sides. In our case, that was our angle is that we're always presenting both sides. So it sounds like you made two choices in there. So one was um, in terms of specificity of content was which issues are you going to have? You, you don't purport on your website to have every single issue because you go very deep on issues. So the first choice is which ones are you going to feature? And then the second choice is really investing the time and energy to make sure it is top notch. Absolutely right. I think at the end of the day, we hang our hat on our quality. And if the quality is not there, then it's not really a magnet. And we're no better than anybody else. Okay. Uh, so we're distinguishing ourselves that way. So we look a little different because the content is in two columns, but we are different in terms of the production. For example, when Procon produces information on a topic, say the topic is a minimum wage, it will take us at least 400 hours to do the research for the single subject. Most people don't have 400 hours to explore their own view of minimum wage, but we do. And so what we've done is take our resources and our time so that we can 
make it very easy for people to learn more about that subject. They can spend minutes, not hours. Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to someone this morning, um, not quite the same issue, but we were talking about um, social media posts. And they said, boy, this is really, we're putting in like an hour on like what picture and like, how do we want to say it? And can we animate it in a way that is eye catching? And they're like, this is just a lot of work. And you're like, yes, it's a lot of work to produce content. That's right. So you better be strategic about where you're putting that work, right? That's right. And I think the term you used is strategic. And to me, that's what really matters. And so our strategy had been, we want to have a look that's different. There's two columns and this methodology that's different. It's two columns. And we want to distinguish ourselves with top quality. So your organization is set up to be a destination and um, a content producer. And I think the lesson for other organizations is, you know, they don't have to employ a team of researchers and go in depth on everything they put up. But thinking strategically about what do we want to say? And can we put in enough work so that this piece of of content lives on and can be a resource for people is a really good lesson because I find a lot of nonprofit websites, there's really no reason to be on them unless you want to read a brochure, mm -hmm. right? So sometimes that's the, that's the hard part of having those. That's absolutely right. If the intention is to grow the online business, I think we got to think about three things. You want your content to be authoritative. So if your topic is homelessness, when people think what's the latest news and information and research on homelessness, they think your site needs to come up. It needs to be clearly about the topic that they're searching for. So if someone types in homelessness and they come to your site and you cover homelessness and animal shelters, you don't want them to see the animal shelter stuff immediately. You want them to see homelessness stuff. That's what they came for. And then third is it needs to be current because at some point it will fall. Even if you got to the number one ranking, if you don't keep that content current, you will fall off. Google rewards those three things, authoritative, and there's various, they look at who's linked to you, who's referenced you. Those people that have linked to you, are they authoritative in that same subject that you want to be known for? So, uh, and do they have a lot of traffic? So if your site on homelessness gets a, say, a link from NBC, well, that's a plus. But if your site on homelessness gets a link from the largest homelessness uh, organization in the country, that's worth a lot more. And so part of the content strategy is thinking about how can you be your content be authoritative to those organizations who can help establish your authority? And then how can you position your content and frame it to where it is clearly about that subject that you're talking about? And of course, keep it current just because you hit publish doesn't mean you shouldn't go back in there and make some tweaks and make some updates and oh, let absolutely. Google know this is this is fresh. So you mentioned uh, another thing uh, when you gave me your list of four words it was engagement. Google, and I keep saying Google because honestly, Google's the one that matters. But we're the talking most. about all search all engines, search and engines, you're talking about right. how people find you. That's right. So you got to have the content, then you have to have engagement. And what engagement means is basically the stickiness. When someone comes to the site, do they stay on the site or do they immediately leave? So if they type in, let's say it's uh, again, I'll just pick homelessness. If they pick homelessness, type in homelessness into Google, they come to your site and they see information that's not about homelessness, they will leave and Google will punish you for that. If they get there and there's some information about homelessness, then that's great. They'll stick around for maybe a few minutes, maybe read some information. If you can keep them there longer, that is better. It will be better for a lot of reasons. So are you talking about keeping an eye on your bounce rate or are there other metrics that you're looking at? Bounce rates, exit rates, uh, and then loyalty rates. Okay. Uh, and those three factors will 
contribute a lot to Google's perception of your uh, content and not just on your desktop, but also on your mobile. And it might ways that you can keep people on the site are, of course, the content has to be good, has to be compelling and keep people reading. But there's also other things that people can do, like what about a poll? What about a survey? What about pictures? People tend to spend more time looking at sites with imagery than sites with just text. What about a video? If you have to click play and it takes 30 seconds, 60 seconds just to watch a video, that's that much longer that that person has spent on your site. When people tend to come back more and more and more, guess what we call those people? Donors. And that's what ends up happening uh, with the increased engagement. And so part of the strategy for building an online business for Procon has always been, we don't just want excellent content. Of course we do. But we also want this engagement because the that website traffic is going to be our funnel for revenue downstream. And so we had to be conscious about that. Um, so talk to me about infrastructure. What is, what's that look like? Infrastructure are some basic things a person might not think to do. So for instance, search engines reward sites that they think are going to be around for a long time. And one of the measures of looking is the domain that you've registered. Let's say it was uh, savetheanimals.com. Is safetyanimals.com something that you've renewed for a year or have you renewed for the maximum period of 10 years? If you have a, an option, go for the maximum number of years. It will be reflect better on you and will show the search engines you plan to be here for a long time. That stability matters. If you have a .org, use it. If you also own the .com and the .net, point them to the .org. The .org carries more weight. The search engines, especially Google, they look at .orgs as being authoritative because they're harder to get. You can't have uh, any old company can't just get it. There's a different hurdle uh, to reach it and attain it. And so therefore, you've already been vetted to some degree. So so do that. Um, make sure the content is mobile friendly. That's part of the infrastructure. Google and the various search engines will look at the mobile friendliness of the page. And there's many tools online you can use to assess whether your pages are mobile friendly. And if they are, you get rewarded for that. So make sure that they are. Speed matters. The how fast does a page load? Not just how fast you think it loads because you're looking at the page, but how fast does it take all the code on that page to load up? So you might not be able to assess that with your eyes. You need to use some tools and there's plenty of free tools to use it. The faster it is, the better it is. And what I really recommend to people, I'm not going to make any recommendations for paid services, but I will for free ones. And the free one is called Cloudflare. So in your infrastructure setup, use Cloudflare. It's free. And what it does is it adds a filter to get to your website and it allows for what's called caching from the Cloudflare server directly to your end user. So for instance, if your server is getting bogged down with a lot of people using it, it's going to slow down the server and it's going to slow down the, the page upload speed for the end user. Yeah, Major it's brands. a nice tool. The way it was described to me was it's the difference between walking up to a, a counter um, at a library and asking for a book that's right on the counter or asking for one that is way in the back that the librarian has to climb a ladder and like go get and then return to you. It makes all of your content right at the counter. Julie, I need you in my life to simplify <laughs> concepts. That's, yeah, and then that's I was like, right. what's a library? <laughs> yeah. So the last thing you mentioned was SEO, search engine optimization. So talk to me a little bit about that. SEO and search engine optimization means things you do on the site and off the site in order to boost the search engine's perception of your content. And for instance, that means third-party links to your site. This is off-site. So if Google is using this concept, the wisdom of the crowd, if the crowd thinks your site is authoritative, then guess what? You're going to get a better ranking for, for the terms that you are trying to 
identify your site with. In order to show Google that your site is authoritative in those areas, it's important to get links from organizations that are authoritative in those areas. It can be worth it to approach organizations in those areas and say, hey, do you mind creating a link to us? A lot of them don't want to do it, but some of them will. And that's where relationships come in handy, Relationships right? matter. Partnerships matter. <laughs> asking matters. And ask earnestly and nicely. Don't hire some service where someone with a Gmail account is going to ask a person at an organization that you respect and care about, you ask them, use your domain. It needs to come from at your domain, not a, a random person and, and ask earnestly and what's in it for them and what's in it for you. And it's not, hey, this is going to help us with our traffic. It's no, this is a partnership. Uh, we really respect your work. We want you to, we want to help your audience understand this issue better. So therefore be useful to link to us. And then of course we'll do the same and, and call it reciprocal. A lot of people are wary of these reciprocal link exchanges because it had been exploited and abused uh, so much. Uh, but at the, the bottom line of it is it can work if it's an earnest, honest relationship. And those links are so, so valuable. So third-party links is part of SEO. That includes third-party links on social media. So having a, a really strong social media strategy can be part of this. If it is a closed social media circuit, like an Instagram or a Facebook, where you, Google doesn't necessarily index all the pages of Facebook, and you need a password to log in and see the content, those don't really do much for SEO. But there are other open systems, and the Facebook pages that are publicly shared, those can be good. And so it's so that would be like your business page. Your business page, right. exactly. Those things are useful to get links from, particularly when they're authoritative. Well, those are all incredible in the weeds tactics. And I think the advice to most people is that you don't need to learn how to do them yourself, but you need to know they exist so you can hire an expert to mm -hmm. do them. Absolutely right. And I think basic searches, you'll find a lot of these tactics are freely available and you might need just someone who is good at implementing them. Right. Uh, and knowing, like you said, knowing that, knowing what you don't know. Uh, so we can at least be aware and, and program it in. And these things are, they don't require money. And that was the best part of it for me and for ProCon and for the various organizations that I worked at. We didn't have big budgets. And so how do we get to the top of Google search with versus people who do have big budgets uh, is we're not going to buy our way there. We The only way we can get there is through search engine optimization and developing really strong content in the area for which we are most passionate. So let's talk about uh, the funnel. So you have obviously done all of this work to attract people to your website. How do you turn someone into someone that found you via search into a donor? What we want to do is get that person understanding not just that they're at a reference, a resource website. If they think of us as a resource, they're not likely to give. If someone might use dictionary.com, but they don't think, I better send them a check. They will give to Wikipedia, for instance, if Wikipedia says, we are the largest collection of human knowledge in the world, this is vastly important, we're free, and you're like, okay, now they made an emotional case, I get it, I'm in. For ProCon, what we need to do and I'm not saying we're great at it, but our strategy and our funnel is we need to make the emotional case for why we're not just coldly, rationally analyzing arguments, but why this is so important 
for us personally in our own lives, but for us as a as a nation. And we need to do more of this type of critical thinking. So we need to, we show impact, we use emotional language, we want to appeal to that left brain just as much as the right, but especially the left. Get those people coming back. We want to get their email addresses. Uh, we want to understand what their interests are. What page were they on when they signed up for the email? Oh, you they keep on the marijuana page or were they on the felon voting page or the immigration page? And maybe custom target the information that that person receives based on their interests. We need to show that we're listening and not just talking. And we can do that by showing reader comments on our sites. We can do that by putting our contact information prominently throughout. We can do that by making our contact forms easily and readily apparent. And we show our audience that we care what you have to say too. And when people feel heard, I think they feel more receptive and more connected to the brand as well. How has your list, your email list grown over the years? The email list at first trudged along because what we had was a little sign up box on the right side of our pages. And when I say trudged along, I'm talking for a site that at the at the time was getting maybe 100,000 people a day, we would get maybe three or four signups, pretty pitiful conversion rate because no one would see the box. They didn't know why to sign up. What we ended up doing was creating a, a pop up that would show up is called a light box versus a pop up. But it's on the light box, right? It's um, it grays out your site in the back, right? That's right. So it yeah. really highlights that it really highlights yeah. it, right? So we did the light box for email signups, but we triggered it only on the second visit. And for the second visit, then that person was like, Oh, I know this site, I kind of like it, I'm going to sign up. At that point, we were getting uh, 250 signups a day. Uh, we, from three to 250. From three to 250. I would count that as an effective tool. It, it was an effective tool. Uh, what we did is grew that list up to, uh, it got to over 300,000 on our list at its largest. And what we then did is we looked at, well, who's actually reading these email newsletters? And if they're not reading it, then we need to tell them, we're just going to drop you from the list because, of course, for these email services, you pay by the size of the Absolutely. list. <laughs> well, cleaning a list is a really important part of maintaining a list. I would much rather have you have a thousand people on your list that are rabid fans than 300,000 people, you know, 299,000 of which don't really care. I think that's absolutely right. And so in our case, we shrunk our list by about 60% and got it to where our open rates, which were typically around 10%, uh, we got our open rates up to 20% because the folks who never cared in the first place, they yeah. just signed up because maybe they thought they had to because the light box took over their screen. They mm -hmm. didn't know what this was. We're getting a lot of bogus email addresses, like obviously bogus email addresses. And once we purged all that stuff, we just found much greater success with our email newsletters. That's great. And, and now it's something that people look forward to rather than uh, it's them again. And are you doing annual appeals through those newsletters? We're doing lists? annual appeals, but basically from right around Thanksgiving to the end of the year uh, is when we do the bulk of our asks uh, through the website and through email. And what we've found is that December accounts for roughly 70% of online giving and that in the month of December, the last three days account for about 70% of the, that month's giving. That sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> and we tried different approaches for different folks. And a lot of times they don't give the first time around. It's not because they're not interested. It's because they're not ready yet. Mm -hmm. And they just need another reason. Or let me think about it. And then they'll sit on it. Uh, they won't block you or unsubscribe because they know it's the time of the season. If we did that all year long, yes, they would go away. Uh, but we're 
mindful of it. So we, what we're really doing is trying to develop a relationship with that with each and every person and to do it digitally. And it's awfully hard to do it. So if we think about it as like online dating, we don't want to just immediately say, hey, let's get married on the first date. Right. It's like, well, it's who we are, it's what we're about, and we'll tell you more about ourselves. And by the end of it, okay, now we might have a relationship. Uh, and that same strategy is what informs what we do. And they have to be really, I think, honest, earnest, and include a lot of the emotional reasons why a person would care about the cause. Of course, it has to have the, the impact support and show the legitimacy. And yes, we're four star rated on Charity Navigator. And this is our guide star approval rating. And we've won such and such awards and your credit card transactions are safe. All of that stuff needs to be true. But it, that's not why people give. They give because they care about the cause and because someone asked them to. But I think that stuff you're doing is really good at priming your audience. Like there's so many organizations, I feel like, and you must get into this sometimes too, where people say, I didn't even know you were a nonprofit organization. It's such a good point. And you're right. I think a lot of people don't realize, oh, you're a .org nonprofit, oh, you're a public charity. Oh, you need my funding. That's right. how you survive. Uh, I'm taking notes as you speak because uh, your words are ringing true. That's right. We do need to acknowledge that that's the funding is contingent on on the audience and they need to be primed and ready for for that message. So when it's time to ask, the expectation is there. How, um, do you have a welcome series for people when they sign up for your newsletter? We do. There's a, an automated welcome that they immediately get. And then because we typically send one or two emails a month, they're going to get something from us uh, soon after they come on board. Uh, and that the message is going to be the the, meet, the first message, the welcome message is thank you for joining. And it's always thank you. We always lead with gratitude. I think that's just a good way to live a life, uh, right? So we lead with gratitude. Uh, but then, of course, we give them what they came there for. And they came there for I want to understand what's going on with these issues. I don't have time in my life. Please make this easy for me. So, okay, we'll make it really easy for you. Here's what's changed on the world of the marijuana state laws. Here's where we're at with physician aid and dying. Here's where we're at with the latest vaccination requirements. Here's where, and just break it down. Uh, and that's what they want. So that's what we give them. Um, you also get support from foundations. Yes, we sure do. Uh, we are Los Angeles-based. Our biggest funders happen to be Los Angeles-based foundations. Annenberg Foundation is a big funder. The Roy and Patricia Disney Foundation, Amundsen Foundation, Green Foundations. I know you know all these these big foundations. Uh, it's that, and of course, it's our our audience. And you know, we are fortunate in that we have a large audience to draw from to help us fund the the entire operation. We don't have a big budget. Uh, and we have enough support to where we can maintain our operations and continue to grow every single year. For, in our case, for every dollar that we spend, we're able to reach 36 people. And typically nonprofits are using are bragging about the reverse. Like we can reach one student with 36 bucks. And we're like, yeah, well, we can do 36 for a dollar. Uh, how about that? So I think that that impact is really tremendous. And we owe that to the fact that our website is so effective at drawing in people. So I can't emphasize enough how vitally important it is for a nonprofit organization organization to have a strong, I'll call it an aerial game. You can have a great ground game. If you don't have an air game, then your your nonprofit is not going to be nearly as impactful as you want it to be. And it goes back to what you first said of, you know, doing this work at scale. At scale, that's right. When you look at organization websites, what do you look for? I look for a resonance with what they do. I look for consistency with what they're talking about. I look for it to be current. 
it blows my mind when I go and I see a website with, you know, financial data from 2015 mm. or um, an executive director that left, you know, six months ago. I'm amazed by how many people in this sector still kind of when I ask them questions about an inconsistency I find between their their LOI or their proposal and their website who are not aware of what it says on their own website. No kidding. So you um, see different languages? Yeah, because I think that they actually farm out the website in a lot of cases. They hire a communications consultant, or it's done through a board member, or it's an intern. And you know the program staff and the CEO and the development people don't necessarily see it as their responsibility because they want to control their message to a targeted audience and they don't really care about what happens to the general audience. And I think it's important that they remember that those audiences oftentimes are one in the same. I'll get a proposal. It's fine. I met with you. We talked. I sat down. I was there. But before we make a decision, my program director and I, we both are going to be on your website. And so if they're inconsistent, that implies to me that there is a, at a minimum kind of a delinquency of leadership and a, and a lack of attention to detail. Um, it's really frustrating. I cannot believe in this day and age how many organizations actually cannot update their own website. They uh, should be able to update it in-house hourly. Absolutely. It, the software is 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 easy enough at this point. Yeah. They, you, they have made it. You don't have to call your guy. You don't have to write up things and send them over to him. You don't have to have a meeting. You should have somebody on staff and the functionality to update it immediately. And that doesn't mean you have to buy high-end web software. You can use WordPress or something like that where your average intern can change the words yeah. um, and add new entries and delete people um, and address the fact that somebody stole all the money yesterday or whatever happened at your nonprofit. But you that should go on the front, front page. That's, you, that's the headline. 100%. you got to be able to get out in front and control your yes, message. Yes, absolutely. You don't want people reading about it from a third source, whether that's Charity Navigator or the LA Times. So one of the pros of having like an all online nonprofit is that it's pretty easy to scale. You can reach a lot of people really fast. I think one of the cons is that you don't really have deep relationships with users. How do you view that? Well, I think it's fine. I mean, you have to remember my bias is that I ran Charity Navigator for right. seven years, which <laughs> right. is the exact same model, um, which is all of our services were delivered online. Some of our old school funders always wanted us to put together an, an annual book of some sort that we'd mail out with, you know, here's 100 charities that you could flip around. Those are out of date before they even go to print. So we always knew that we were going to provide our services online. So I don't think that it matters. I think that if you do what you do and you do it well and you have some way of demonstrating metrics that show that you've had impact, then I think that it'd be, you know, um, it'd be silly in 2018 to say that you can't primarily operate online when you're right. I mean, some of the most essential services that we see out there, including things like medicine, um, are being delivered online at this point. So I, I don't think we have to insist that you have to have a, a high touch um, relationship with whatever product it is, whatever, whatever service you're providing. If you do it online, just do it well and be able to tell me why you do it well. So you and I met when I was working at DonorsChoose.org. You obviously were at the Eisner Foundation. And one of the struggles we had at Donors Choose was trying to convince people that where our headquarters were, like where our offices were. So I'd talk to funders and they'd say, but you're online. We only fund this area. And I'd say, well, I have you know 50,000 teachers in your area using it. Does the move to online services throw off most foundations' emphasis on a certain geography? 
Yeah, I think it complicates it. I think it's to be fair. I mean, you know, we've we've talked in previous episodes about our insistence on having people on the ground in Los Angeles where we fund because we think that if you don't have somebody here, there's a chance you don't understand here. And we've seen way too many nonprofits that have had success in San Francisco or Minneapolis or New York who think that they can just, you know, put it in a box and have it work in Los Angeles. Mm So when it comes to service delivery, if you're actually doing something on the ground, I do think that you need to have somebody here in the community. But if the product that you're providing is online, maybe that's not as necessary. I do think that when it comes to fundraising, the vast majority of high net worth individuals are still going to want to meet with you. So not having a development director in your community is probably a dangerous move in the long run. If you could change one thing about nonprofit websites, what would you change? I think I would demand that they make the move from just being a brochure. So many of them are just, let's take what used to be the About Us pamphlet that we would hand out and just turn it into a website without recognizing that there are great opportunities to get people to take an action. And so I hope that more nonprofits would would look into how do we use our website to cause people to do things, not just how do we use our website to inform people. Yeah. And on that action point, I think that's an I think that's awesome advice for any organization. And the action doesn't always have to be make a donation. No, it could just be get involved Yeah, in some way or another. Tell a friend, you know, proselytize, advocate, but don't just think of it as, you know, I read ESPN.com this morning, and when I was done, I read your charity website, and both of them just gave me some info. Go to the point where one of them causes you to do something. Right. That's why we're here, right? Hopefully. That's all for today's episode of How We Run. Please check out goodwaysinc.com to find past episodes of this podcast and other tips about working in nonprofit. If you have any questions you want me to ask a funder on this podcast, you can tweet me at goodwaysinc. Please subscribe to How We Run on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and leave us a rating and review. Thank you for listening. I'm Julie Lacature, and we'll see you next week for another new episode.